right, we're going to look at Daniel, the book. And um, I mentioned in my text to everyone that basically it's going to, I want to probably do one chapter, take two weeks or so to do one chapter. There's some parts, though, in Daniel where it is, there's so much information and it's historical information, which is absolutely fascinating, even though there are no names often given in those chapters. It's absolutely astounding how accurate historically it is. So rather than just breeze over this stuff, um, on those particular chapters, we may slow down and you know break it up a little bit more. But we're looking at around 24 weeks because it's a 12-chapter book. So we'll probably... Um, of course, take a break here and there over the holidays, etc., and then come back. October 5th, um, we won't be, that's a Sunday night, is that right? Yes, I think it's a yeah. So October 5th, we will not be meeting because Sylvia and I are going camping that week. And plus, you folks have something here going on that night anyway, right? So, is that right? That weekend. They should be going on the night, but yeah. Okay. okay. Here's, here's here's it's October 8th. Sorry. It's October 8th? That's October. So the 5th, we're okay? The 5th is on a Thursday. Oh, the 8th. Okay, got it. All right, so I passed this out last week, and I just want to kind of take a few minutes to go over this so that we can kind of get an idea of, you know, there's so much there in Daniel, and there's so much there around the history of when that book was written. Um, and to gain that understanding, you really have to go outside the Bible, and you have to look at all the extra stuff that was written historically by rabbis, by other historians, secular historians at the time, what they had to say. And what's fascinating about these empires that we're going to be introduced to, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the uh, Grecian, and then the Roman, which of course comes way later, but those particular first couple, at least, the uh, Babylonian and the Medo-Persian Empire, they had their own historians. Now, they wrote tons of stuff about what was happening at the time. And when we read the Bible, we get a glimpse only because all we're reading about in Scripture is what really connects with Scripture in this book, what connects with Daniel. But there's so much stuff outside that we're, of course, not going to have the time to go into. But um, as a student of history, I really enjoy reading that stuff. But this is what I want us to get a grip on here. The book of Daniel is not chronological in order. So what I've done here is kind of made this chart to make it real easy for us. It goes chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 in order. And then to maintain the order, you'd have to skip to chapter 7 and 8. And then you go back to 5 and then 6. And then you pick up with 9, 10, 11, and 12. That is the actual, literal, chronological order. We're not going to cover it like that. We're just going to go from 1 to 12. But I just want you to be aware that this is the actual order of events in the book of Daniel. The time that it was written was during Daniel's life, which was, you know, he started writing it in around 605 B.C. He ended, commentators are divided on whether 
he ended his public service in about 538 BC. But he ended his ministry as a prophet because of his death about, it was around 536 or there, thereafter. So he had a long ministry with at least two, if not three, of those empires. It's fascinating. And he was probably taken along with his friends from Jerusalem as a teenager. He was probably 16, 17 years old. And he never got to go back to Jerusalem. So he was taken, and God revealed all of this information to him, including, which is what we're going to get into eventually, what's happening actually now, the end times. So Daniel saw all this. He didn't see it in complete detail, but as we'll find out, what he did learn shocked him. It kind of took away his breath. He, because he failed, even when the angels would explain something to him about what was going to happen way down the line, he still didn't understand it. And I get it. I mean, look at our technology today. We take for granted cell phones, computers, projectors, cars, electricity. Can you imagine being in Daniel's day and age before any of this was ever a blip on the radar and then being given kind of like eyes to see some of what was going on in the future and, and the Apostle John the same way in the book of Revelation try to make heads or tails out of what you're seeing that must have been so hard and shocking but Daniel we will see this as we go through this. There are times when, as I, I'm sure you know, because I'm sure you've read the book of Daniel, there are times when he was just like the Apostle John in Revelation. So taken aback, so shocked, so exhausted, that he just slept. I mean, he, he, the energy was totally sapped from him. And, and yet he... God gave him these visions. Much of what he gave him these visions about, especially chapter 9 and chapter 10, and then um, etc. We'll see this in here. Chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8. These are all visions that he sees. The one in chapter 2, as we'll get to, is the one where Nebuchadnezzar the king has a dream. He doesn't understand the meaning of it. Daniel explains it only because God gave him the ability to do that. So he sees things that are way down the line today in our age. That to me is kind of interesting. So that's what we're going to get into. So again, chapters 1 through 6, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, those are mainly, mainly, not completely, mainly historical. Chapters 7 through 12 are what they call apocalyptic or predictive, which is along the lines of the book of Revelation, almost the entire book of Revelation. It's actually, in the Greek, it's called the apocalypse because everything is pointing to a future time when everything will culminate, where God will wrap everything up. So that's chapter 7 through 12. And then, by the way, Daniel 2 
starting with verse 4 to 7, verse 28. These are written to the nations, and this text originally was written in Aramaic, which I thought is fascinating. What is the basis of that language? What did you say? What is the basis of that language? Where does Aramaic come from? The Middle East area. I mean, it's still spoken there today. Oh, is it? Yes. Okay. And then Daniel 1, 8, chapter 8 through 12 is written specifically to the Jewish people. Now, it's fascinating because even though parts of Daniel apply to Gentiles, you and I, there's no one Jewish in here, or is there? No? No Jews? You sure? Okay. <laughs> Sam, you're not Jewish? No. Okay. <laughs> so even though it's, it's written mainly to Jews and the Jewish people, because throughout this book, we're going to, you know, the, the visitors from the spiritual realm will say to Daniel, this is for your people, your people. It's, it's an emphasis on your people. Well, who are Daniel's people? They are Jews. And the, the message is always ultimately pertaining to what's going to happen with Israel, what's going to happen with Jerusalem, and what will be the outcome for the Jewish people, the nation that God created. However, it does address Gentile nations. So that's part of this as well. Does anybody have any questions on this before we go to the next part? You said that uh, Daniel was uh, tapped out, I guess, for lack of a better term. Tapped out. Uh, wow, he's just exhausted. Yes, yes. But what, does he say that in Daniel, or how do we know that? He it does say that. It, it, it does. doesn't say tapped out, but I mean, it, it's like I lay in bed. I was this. I, you know, it indicates he was overwhelmed and exhausted, just right, 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 yeah. right. and depressed. Huh? And I can see where he would be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine if you know well, you're sitting there. All these visions came to him too in prayer. Or well, but no, we'll get to it because there are times when he's out by the river and all of a sudden he looks up and he sees four men on, on horses and the people next to him, with him, they didn't see anything, but they sent something and they were completely petrified. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and what I think is also fascinating, by the way, is Daniel's character, which we will see throughout this book. We can all agree that Daniel was a human being like us and a sinner. We can all agree, I'm sure. Same, same thing about Job. There's no indication in here, in this book, what Daniel's specific sins were or where he sinned, when he sinned, or how often he sinned. He is consistently told by these angelic messengers, Daniel, a man greatly beloved, Yet, he was a sinner. Wow. He was a human being. And I think that's encouraging for us. Because sometimes I am extremely... You know, Mark says the same thing, and I get it. Because uh, I think I have a similar personality to Mark. I am my own worst enemy. I mean, I am so hard on myself sometimes. And when I'm hard on myself, it, it kind of... What would you say? It can affect the people that are around me sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Mark says the same thing. And I look at Mark, and then I look at Chanda, and I go, yes, you're like Chanda. <laughs> she is, you know? And, and I'm like Mark. You know, I'm not sure you're quite Mary Poppins, but, like, he describes Chanda as being but, Yeah. Daniel, also, when he 
comes in contact with the king, when he speaks, mm -hmm. he almost talks like he's he hypnotizing the king because they never fly off the heaven when he's talking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, I can't imagine being in his shoes, but knowing what he went through and how consistent he was in his character and personality, regardless of what he faced, was he royalty? And when I say royalty, from the house guy, yeah, he was. Oh, was nobility. he? Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm asking because all the villains in the history of the Babylonian would capture and would right. take. Yeah, they didn't People take just anybody. To, to serve in the, right. court, the royal court, it would be somebody right. from the royal family, right. the nation they just conquered or whatever. But, well, yeah, that, and they would take the kings and blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah, they, but the, the quote-unquote common people that they didn't feel like they could benefit from, they would leave them there. Yeah. 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 That's exactly what happened. Well, no, let's no, move no, on. No. Sorry, what? I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar chose the, the captains, they were from the nobility of, yeah. of Judea. He didn't go down right. some of the real common... No, 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 because he knew, he knew what he wanted to use these young men for, yeah. to be in his court. And so he wanted the best of the best to be able to train them to put him in his court so they could wind up being counselors for him. So you're right, he's not going to take just anybody. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was extremely shrewd. If you've ever read any history about him, um, he was extremely shrewd. He didn't get where he was because he was a slouch. He got where he was because he was extremely intelligent. He was a brilliant um, military man, and he just, he knew people. He knew people. And, and that is part of what makes a tremendous leader. His ego, as we'll see in the book of Daniel, was a huge problem for him. But even in that, God did not cast him off completely. He said, you're going to have seven years to think about it. So we'll get to that. Anyway, the author of the day. The prophet Daniel starting at 605 B.C. Um, can you all see this? I know it's a little bit small. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay, Daniel was probably a teenager at this time, as I mentioned, and he continued in office as a public servant until 538 and a prophet until 536. So he had a long public service, uh, public servant livelihood in, uh, in those two or three empires, and then he also continued as a prophet. He had great respect, but it didn't come easy because, as we'll learn, there were other people who were extremely jealous, wanted to get him out of the way, and so uh, he was tossed eventually into the lion's den. But of course, we'll get into that. I'm sure you know the story. Now, what I think is fascinating about Daniel is that we have so-called liberal. I, I don't like using the word liberal anymore because it's kind of a misnomer. A liberal used to be, you know, I don't agree with you, but I'll defend your right to say it to the death. Today, these guys don't exist. They're more leftists. They're more leftists because they're like, you don't have a right to say that. I don't want to hear it. You need to be censored. So in those days, this is actually what they were. They were close to what leftism is today because they wanted to censor Daniel. But the liberal scholars of the 70s and 80s, or you can call them higher critics, 
they basically said, oh no, that, that Daniel didn't write the book of Daniel. No, what happened was, some guy in the second century came up and said, uh, I'm going to be Daniel, and I'm going to look back and write down everything that occurred, everything that occurred, and I'm going to present it as if I was there before it happened. That's what these guys would say. The difficulty with that is, there's still things in the book of Daniel that have not occurred. It's still future, even from our perspective. So when you look at that, you've got to go, okay, well, why do they have to work so hard to try to make the authority of God's word so non-existent? Because that's what they do. But we know that this is a, an attempted fake-out. The reality is, Daniel himself wrote this. And, and by the way, we know from Scripture, Ezekiel, Ezekiel named Daniel. He referred to it. Um, Jesus himself, there's no better authority. Jesus himself said, from the book of Daniel. You know, so he referred back to it. So we don't have to doubt that this was written by God through the prophet Daniel. Wouldn't that have been found in the Dead Sea Scrolls? I'm sorry? Oh, well, oh yeah. Wouldn't Daniel been found in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, but come on, you know. You don't want to make these liberal scholars do that kind of research, do you? Uh, uh, <laughs> man, that could, they could break a brain. All right, so the background. In 605, Prince, he was only a prince at the time, Prince Nebuchadnezzar led the Babylonian army of his father, Nabopolassar, against the allied forces of Assyria and Egypt. So what we're talking about here, which is fascinating in this book, it's really a game of thrones. In the olden days, you had an empire. Matter of fact, empires could consist of a small town or a large city. That could be the empire. Yeah. Or it could be huge, incorporating millions and millions of acreage. That could be the empire. Well, the two biggest forces at that time were Assyria and Egypt. Assyria is where Syria is now. You know where Egypt is. It's funny how that name never changed. So Nabopolassar was the king, and he sent Prince Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army against these two particular empires. Well, interestingly enough, Nebuchadnezzar gained victory over and provided Babylon with supremacy in the ancient Near East. How did that affect Israel? Well... Judah also came under Babylonian control. I don't have a map, but if you were to look at a map, you've got Assyria up here, you've got Egypt down here, and then you've got Israel, Judah, Jerusalem right in the middle. So there was always a ping-pong match between whatever empire was up here and Egypt or other empires down here, and they always were gaining and regaining and losing control of Israel. And why did that happen? Why was Israel always bounced from one to the next? What was Israel's problem? They were caught in the middle. They were caught in the middle. Yeah, and what didn't they do? It was a trade route between the two capitals. Yeah. Uh, all kinds of spices and whatever that were traded. And, right. I mean, uh, yeah, so at, uh, what is the, the city in Jordan? Uh, Damascus? No. Uh, Damascus. 
No, that's in Syria. Syria. Uh, the one where the Israel, Israelis are going to go flee to or whatever. Oh, Petra. Yeah, that was okay. a trade center. So, you yeah. know, along this route, and there were several other trade centers. But, yeah, they're in the middle. Right. And so what was the big problem with you know, it's, it's really a bad fit. It country. is a bad fit, but what was Israel's problem, too, personally? Disobedient to God. Disobedient to God? Constantly. Yeah. Constantly. They well, alliances with Assyria. And they would make alliances with Assyria when they heard that Egypt was going to try to attack them, and then vice versa, when Assyria was going to attack them, they'd go down to Egypt and go, hey, can you help us out? We'll pay you. And so what they were looking for were mercenaries to help them. Instead of turning to God, they would just turn to other nations, other human-led nations. But weren't they separated from one another by then? Who, like Israel and Judah? Southern kingdom? Oh, yeah, and most of the, by now... Yeah. It was just Judah. And David and Solomon were the only kings of right. everything. Right. So by now, it's just Judah. Yeah. That's what's hanging on. Israel's pretty much gone. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the ten tribes. The yeah. Ten so anyway, Judah also came under Babylonian control, whether they liked it or not. And that same year, he was a busy man. Nebuchadnezzar died, and Nebuchadnezzar becomes king. So Nebuchadnezzar was no slouch, even as a prince. He knew military. He understood it. He understood it, which is why his father sent him and said, hey, you're in charge of the troops, go get them. And he did. So that same year, Nebuchadnezzar became king. And then Nebuchadnezzar decides, I'm going to take Judah. And so he did. And then he, he went in a total of three times. So he took some royal and noble there's your nobility. He took your royal and noble captives to Babylon, Daniel 1, 1 to 3, including Daniel, plus some of the vessels from Solomon's temple. But what was so cool about this, or I should say what was good about this is, when Nebuchadnezzar took these things from the temple, he basically just stored them in his warehouses. And it allowed them to be for safekeeping. He never used them. He never violated them. He never misused them. He just stored them. And we can read about that in 2 Chronicles 36. So the first of three deportations to Babylon when Jehoiakim was king. He was the king of Judah. I mean, this is really convoluted and I'm not going to go into too much detail. But there was the second deportation where he went and pulled people out in 537 B.C. So in 605 B.C. he becomes king. He goes in and he starts deporting people from Judah. So the second deportation happens in 537. The third deportation happens 11 years later. So he has gone into Judah now and Jerusalem three different times to get what he wants. And why did he keep doing this? Because they would not obey. Yeah, they were revolting. They were totally revolting. Nebuchadnezzar gets rid of Jehoiakim and puts somebody else in who's supposedly, yes, I will honor and obey, and doesn't. And so it creates problems for the Israelites and God had basically, remember when God had told them that just go to Babylon, pray for them, live a quiet life, and you'll be okay. And why, by the way, did he send them apart? Specifically, why did God send all the Israelites and the Judahites all the way to Babylon? What was the main big problem? It was a punishment for not keeping the shrinker. 
Yeah, well, it's not for the keeping the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath. Yes. Yeah, right, the, the Swedish cycle. Which is the right. Years. Every seven so, years, you know, you're, you're supposed to do what? What? Allow the ground to be fallow. Allow the ground. You're supposed to plant for seven. You know, the six years on the seventh year, you're supposed to just let the land rest. Now, farmers a lot of times don't do that today because they, um, some still do. They still rotate the crops, but a lot of them, they just add nutrients to it. But back then... God was saying, you need to let the ground rest so the nutrients can build up again so that when you're not going to deplete it from the land. Well, they didn't pay attention to that. And they did that for 70 times. So 70 sevens, they did not observe the law. And so God said, okay, fine, fine. I've tried to tell you. I've wanted you to do it my way because that's the best way. And you've said... Now we're not doing that. And you've done it 70 times. My patience has ended. So now I'm going to have Nebuchadnezzar come in here, my servant, and he is going to escort you out of this land and you'll be out of it for 70 years. And the land will have its Sabbath rest. That was the big part. So if, if they had been completely obedient and done everything God said, this never would have happened. Never. But the Jews, Israel, as God referred to them, they are hard-hearted, stubborn, stiff-necked. One day, he's going to take their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. So the third deportation 11 years later, Madaniah, whose name Nebuchadnezzar had changed to Zedekiah, was then Judah's puppet king. And uh, he rebelled, this guy rebels, against Babylon's sovereignty by secretly making a treaty with Pharaoh Hophra under pressure from Jewish nationals. You can read about that in Jeremiah 37-38. I've always been a fan of history. I love history. Absolutely love it. So when I see this, I'm thinking, wow, this is amazing. Well, at this time, Pharaoh Hophra was really no challenge to Nebuchadnezzar. None. And it's just, as we get into the book of Daniel, we'll see um, proof that Egypt was no match for Nebuchadnezzar and for Babylon. And what's fascinating, by the way, without giving it all away, Egypt, you're familiar with Daniel 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, right, of this big statue, right? And he doesn't know what it means, so Daniel comes in, and he gives him the dream. You'll notice... The, each section of that statue, which we'll get into, represents a different empire. Egypt isn't there. It's not one of the major empires. For as big as they were, for as advanced as they were, they were not considered one of the big, the big empires. All right, so after an 18-month siege, to 18 months, Jerusalem fell. Nebuchadnezzar was not one to give up. They built siege walls against Jerusalem. They burned the temple. They broke down the city walls. And they took all of the poor, all but the poorest of the Jews captive. The poorest, they just let them hang out there. Hey, do whatever you need to do to make a living, eat, whatever. But they took the best. They took the best. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He also took, I'm sure you're familiar with this one, in 2 Kings 24, 18. He took Zedekiah prisoner, Zedekiah, Mataniah, whose name was changed to Zedekiah, and he's the guy who revolted. He took him to Babylon, and after he executed 
his sons right in front of him. Then he puts out the king's eyes. He doesn't kill him. He just take, takes his eyes out. And uh, this was done in Riblet at Aram. And he put him in prison. You can live with it. You can live with your, you know, your mistakes. Your decisions. Think about it. You know, you ever say that to a recalcitrant child? You sit there and you think about it. <laughs> that's, what, that's Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying you sit there and think about it. All right. The length of Daniel's ministry was about 70 years. This was the entire duration of the Babylonian captivity. And again, the 70 years was because Israel, they could have so easily avoided this. But they were just so darn stiff-necked. They didn't want to do the simplest of things. You know, how many times you read in Scripture where the nation of Israel would actually do worse things than the neighbors, the empire around them. They would adopt those religious um, things that those other nations did and then become worse. They would become worse. So this was Israel and the ministry was for 70 years the exact amount of time that, or the exact number of Sabbaths that they never... Doesn't the Medo-Persian Empire come into play right there at the end? At the end of 70 years? Yeah. Not quite at the end, but yeah. It's coming. I know. Okay. Yeah, we'll get to it. So the internal and external evidence, when I say internal and external, this, this is the internal evidence uh, within the scripture. External evidence is the secular historians and the rabbis who wrote all these writings separate from what was in scripture. So it favors Daniel's authorship overwhelmingly to tie it all back together. There's no way this could have been written by someone other than the original Daniel. So both within the book and others, and I mentioned that Ezekiel refers to Daniel. Jesus also credits Daniel as the actual author several times. And Jews in the early church fathers believed Daniel wrote the book named after him. What I always talk to, when, I, when I'm around someone who says, oh, you know, I don't, I don't think Daniel wrote the book. No. And my first question is, well, and, and they say that they're either Christians or religious. My first question is, well, how big is your God? You're, you're telling me then that the God you worship had no ability to be able to choose a human being and actually get what he wanted that person to write on paper? You're saying that couldn't happen? So maybe you should change up to the God of the Bible. So the Aramaic portions in Daniel deal with matters pertaining to all the citizens of Babylonia and the Persian empires. These are the Gentiles. So we're Gentiles, so if we had lived at, at that point, it would have affected us. It would have been written to us. The Hebrew sections describe predominantly Jewish concerns and God's plan for Israel. And this plan, which I find so fascinating, much of it has been accomplished. But there is a good portion of it that has not yet been accomplished. You can't, the only, the only people who believe that everything in the book of Daniel has been accomplished are those people who believe that this is allegory or metaphor. That's it. I believe in a literal translation, and I mentioned that in the last class, which means I take the Bible in its most plain and ordinary sense. So when I get to 
metaphors or figures of speech, I have no problem because a figure of speech usually has one meaning. And I've used the example for you before. If you hear someone say, I'm so hungry, I can eat a horse. I am so hungry, man, I could eat a horse. You would not expect that person to sit at a table and have a horse delivered to them. What are they saying to you? That they're just really hungry. That's the way you understand it because that's what that particular figure of speech means. It doesn't mean my car is out of gas. What? It doesn't mean that. So figures of speech, metaphors are also taken literally in their plain and ordinary sense. Every language, every culture has figures of speech, metaphors, all that kind of stuff. All right. Purpose. One of the main purposes of Daniel is to give hope to Israel. And that's one thing that, that Daniel constantly was after in the book of Daniel, as we see. He was constantly looking for that ray of hope for his people, the Jews, Israel. And he had to wade through a lot of bad news before he would get to that point. His purpose in writing blended two themes of prophecy, prophecy and piety. And both of those are evidenced in Daniel's life. He wrote first to show God's future program for the nation of Israel in light of her fall or failure during and after the times of the Gentiles. And I believe, according to Scripture, that we are in what's called the times of the Gentiles. It started with Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll find out. It does not end until Jesus physically returns. Second, he wrote to show what Jewish believers' present response should be as they wait the coming kingdom of God. This part right here can also apply to us. What is our particular response knowing that, you know, one day God's coming back? Or, if that's too hard or difficult or just feels weird, one day... I'm going to die, and I'm going to go ahead to see him. So what does my life mean now? That's what Daniel was trying to find out and express to other Jews. What should your life mean now? I, I thought it was interesting this morning in our class when David um, Fowler was talking about the state of the United States. It was interesting um, because, you know, many people believe we're losing a grip. We're losing a lot of what the United, what made the United States great. It's slipping away. It's being purposefully diluted. So what should our attitude, what should our life be like in lieu of that? We still have it better than most people in the world. But still, things are slipping away. So what does that mean? Is God no longer in charge? Of course he is. But we have to get with his program. So the church is not included in any portion of Daniel, unless you were to say that most of the church is Gentile in nature. But in the Old Testament, there was really no mention of the church. There was, they couldn't see it. it. It was a mystery that was revealed later through Jesus, and of course, Paul elaborated on that as well. However, this is the very first book in the Old Testament that's written to both Gentiles and Jews. So I think that that's pretty interesting. Are there others? Other uh, books written to Gentiles and Jews? I don't know. Good question. New Testament. You said first. 
uh, it's the first one, date-wise. That would connect, but there's a second. There could be. I will well, double check that. In the New Testament, there's a bunch. Well, in the New Testament, there's a bunch. But I'm, I, the Old Testament, I'd have to actually look again. So the overall purpose, we're getting done here. Uh, the overall purpose is to demonstrate that, and this is fascinating, because this is such a reoccurring theme throughout Scripture. God is sovereignly in control of the nations. He is sovereignly in control of what happened to Israel back then, just as he is in control of what's going on with Israel now, and what's going on with the United States, and everything else that happens in this world. He has control of everything. So when things that we look at and we go, man, that's terrible, it doesn't happen unless God allows it. And the only reason he'll allow it is for his purposes and for his glory. So um, he's in control of the nations under whom Israel, and this is a recurring theme, Israel is being disciplined by these nations that God chooses until the time when he comes, when he will bring in the Messiah's kingdom. And of course, that's the millennial kingdom where Jesus will return physically and he will set up his kingdom and he will rule this world for a thousand years. Israel will ultimately be restored and blessed during that kingdom after first undergoing tribulation and sufferings imposed by the Antichrist. I don't know how familiar you are with some of this stuff, but that's just the long... The, the big picture. Theology. I think we're almost done. Yep. The absolute sovereignty and transcendence of God above all angels and men literally permeates the book. You cannot come away from Daniel and think, well, is God really in charge? Mm -hmm. You can't think that. Everything that happens in the book of Daniel is because God is completely, without doubt, in charge of everything that happens. And we can apply that to our own lives, can't we? Really? Yeah. Is he in charge of what happens in our life, or isn't he? It's hard sometimes. It's hard. The fortunes of kings and the affairs of men are subject to God's decrees. That's a recurrent theme throughout Scripture. And Daniel makes clear that God is absolutely sovereign over human affairs. So, I just want to go over this real quickly. This gentleman says, God's sovereignty over all, God's sovereignty over fallen man, and God's restoration of God's universal dominion. One thing I said last week when we were closing out Revelation is, you've got the creation here, Garden of Eden, including Adam and Eve, all the animals and the plants. Then you've got the fall. And then you've got, all the way down here, the new heavens and the new earth created, the new Eden, and eternity future. All of this is a parenthesis that should never have happened. But it happened because human beings have a will, a free will. And if you go through the scripture carefully, you're going to find that at every turn, whether any creature that has a free will will, will choose to reject God at some point. But God is loving, kind, patient, and he wants us back in fellowship. He doesn't have to do that, but that's what he does. 
Daniel's prophecies also reveal the fulfillment of God's tremendous redemptive plan. Even though we don't see the word of the name Jesus in the book of Daniel, he is there. We learn about the plan that God has to restore humanity since the fall and will culminate with the reign of the Son of Man on the earth. It, it's fascinating to, to hear it in chapter 12. When we get there, we're going to say, seal it up, Daniel. This is for the end times when all things will culminate. There's also a strong theological emphasis on the power of prayer. I will tell you, I don't pray enough. No. I know I don't. I don't. And part of my problem is trying to balance that. Well, God's already, God's in charge. He knows what the outcome is. Here, He knows my heart. I don't know how to pray in this situation. I know that the Holy Spirit speaks for me at times, but I, I still don't get it. I think it's more for us than it is for you. I'm sure it is. Getting into the habit of it, just learning to talk with Him. He wants that fellowship. And then often we don't want to enter into that fellowship. So chapters 1 through 6 and 9 emphasize the power of prayer. God's working in response, especially 9 is fascinating. God's working in response to his people's prayers is clearly evident throughout. And finally, the indomitable grace of God, evidence throughout the <coughs> evidence throughout the world. You see God's grace over and over and over. So the primary thing that we're talking about here in the book of Daniel is the revelation of Israel's future in relation to the Gentile kingdoms and God's exaltation of Daniel as a channel through whom he reveals his will. I can't imagine what Daniel really experienced, what he felt, what he was able to understand when these visions were shown to him. That would have been so freaky. So freaky. And it is considered an historical narrative with prophecy, and it is also apocalyptic in nature, as I mentioned at the beginning, because of its description, literally, of the end of the world. You know, we don't like to think about that. The world's going to end one day. Peter tells us that. Peter tells us it's going to burn up everything, because God doesn't need this world anymore. Once we get to a certain point, God's going to destroy it and start over. So here's the outline. The historic night of prophetic light, chapters 1 through 6. A decline of Judah, fall of Jerusalem, Daniel taken captive to Babylon, his decision to be true to God. That is a fascinating chapter. Right from the get-go, we'll get into this starting next week, we see Daniel's character and his unwillingness, unwillingness to be disobedient. Dream of Nebuchadnezzar about a multi-metallic image, the interpretation by Daniel concerning the four kingdoms. All those four kingdoms make up what's called the times of the Gentiles. That's in chapter 2. And then there's the decree of Nebuchadnezzar to enforce universal idolatry. So we'll get into this. I mean, he, Nebuchadnezzar has just shown this marvelous interpretation of this dream that he had that made him unnerved. And then what does he do? He goes out and creates idolatry and forces everyone in the kingdom to worship this image he sets up. And we don't know what the image looked like, but we'll get into that. And if you refused, hello, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Remember those three guys in the fire furnace? That's chapter three. Dream of Nebuchadnezzar about a great tree hewn down to a stump. Again, God sends the dream to Nebuchadnezzar and he dreams about this huge tree, beautiful tree. And all of a sudden it was chopped down so it's just a stump. He doesn't know that that's a dream about him, chapter 4. And then the downfall of Babylon foretold by Daniel as he read the handwriting on the wall. Mark went over that. No, wait, David went over that. David went over that too. Belshazzar. And then the decree of Darius, the Median or the Mede, to enforce worship of himself. Daniel cast into the den of lions. It's chapter 6. So that's like a replay. Kind of. Yeah. Different, different rulers. Well, different rulers. Yeah. It's like, hey, hey yeah. thank you here. Yeah. But that's okay, because it worked out good, right? This is what the end times is going to look Right. Like. But that's what Darius, it, it proved to Darius who the God of the universe really is. Yeah. So the prophetic light in the historic. Well, Nebuchadnezzar got the same lesson. It did. It took a little bit longer for Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, seven Chapter years. 7 through 12, seven years, that's right. Daniel's vision of four beasts concerning four kingdoms of the times of the Gentiles. So this is chapter 7. This is a different vision concerning the same beast that happened in chapter 2. God's trying to emphasize something. This is where it really gets interesting. Daniel's vision of the ram and the ego and another little horn. Chapter 8. Daniel's vision of 70 weeks concerning the nation of Israel. Daniel's vision relating to Israel in the immediate future in the latter days. The historical little horn and the little horn of the latter days. We'll get to those chapters 10 through 12. Preparation for vision by prayer of Daniel, appearance of a heavenly messenger. Prophecy concerning Persia and Greece. And there's this historic little horn and the eschatological little horn. So we've got a little horn that happened way back in history in 168 BC. And we have, he's really a type of this guy who will be the little horn yet future. 